and welcome to the Mass Bar Beat, the podcast of the Massachusetts Bar Association. I'm Mike Vigno. During the NBA's annual dinner, the NBA will present its 2017 Access to Justice Awards to seven attorneys and one law firm, recognizing their exemplary legal skills and service to the community. As part of our series highlighting the 2017 Access to Justice Award winners, on this episode, we're featuring Rebecca Jacobstein of the Committee for Public Counsel Services, winner of the Defender Award. As a staff attorney in the Appeals Unit of the Committee for Public Counsel Services, Jacob Stein has been relentless in the pursuit of justice for those affected by the Sonia Farrakh drug lab scandal. While she will be the first to tell you that she's not alone in this effort, she says it's situations like this that show the importance of having public defenders who act as a check and balance on the state. We spoke with Jacob Stein about her career and her efforts to help clients in the wake of the drug lab scandal. You've done a lot with um, handling post-conviction appeals. Anything that, you know, made you choose that direction, or how did, how did you get involved with that kind of work? Well, my first job was with the Office of the Appellate Defender in New York City, and um, I applied there because I wanted to be a public defender, and I applied at trial offices, and that actually was the only appellate office I applied to. Uh, but I got the job, and I wanted to live in New York City, so I headed on down. And then um, I went and did some trial work. But uh, when I moved back to Massachusetts, I decided I was better at appellate work and post-conviction work, so I went back to that. Now, I know you've done a lot with uh, Sonia Farrakh cases. How did you first get involved uh, with representing those individuals on appeal on uh, cases that were affected by that? So CPCS attorney uh, Jared Olinoff um, filed new trial motions on behalf of uh, two clients, and they had their hearing on the new trial motion, and when they lost, they appealed. And um, I started work here in April of 2014, and that was those were the cases on my desk when I arrived. So those were, those were literally the first cases that you had in Boston? They, yeah, they were the first cases I had when I walked in the door. Where do those stand today? Well, so I had two clients, um, and one of the uh, cases, my client was able to get his cases dismissed. The Commonwealth agreed to the allowance of his new trial motion, and then they moved to dismiss the case against him uh, with prejudice, and the judge allowed the motion. So he's done. My other client had um, has both a new trial motion uh, seeking a new trial uh, based on the government, uh, the misconduct of Ms. Farrick, but uh, he also has a motion to dismiss based on the uh, prosecutorial misconduct of the Attorney General's office. And so I argued those on Tuesday and um, we're awaiting a ruling. What has been maybe the most challenging aspect of handling uh, the Farrick-related cases? In the beginning, the most challenging aspect of it was really being the only people who really wanted to get to the bottom of the scope of Ms. Farrick's misconduct. Um, and we were basically bearing the burden that Scott says defendants should not have to bear to figure out the scope of the misconduct. Um, you know, we have far fewer tools than the government does. We basically have motions and subpoenas. And 
the government has, you know, they can give people immunity. Um, they can do proffers. They, you know, they can convene a grand jury, and they actually have, uh, you know, investigative tools, and, and they can do things that we can't do. But we were the ones at the beginning who had to do this. Eventually, um, after the SJC's decisions in Commonwealth versus Cotto and Commonwealth versus Ware, the Attorney General's office did decide to do um, an investigation. But by that time, uh, we had already received we had already, just through our what little powers we did have, were able to get information that demonstrated her misconduct went back to 2004. Um, and then later on, it seemed that we were the only ones concerned about learning the scope of the Attorney General's office's misconduct. And again, we, you know, we've only been able to look at what the government has been willing to share. So what do you think the events in the Farrakh-related fallout, what does that say overall about the work and the need for public defenders? Well, I just want to start out with that the person who broke this case open was Luke Ryan. He's the one that found the, the evidence that they were hiding, um, or maybe they were not hiding it. Maybe they, were, they just failed to turn it over. But in any event, he's the one who found it, and he was court-appointed. Um, so really how it goes to indigent defense counsel, it's that you need to have a counterweight to the government because they don't always do what needs to be done. And so you need public defenders and court-appointed counsel uh, to kind of keep their eye on them. And then I think secondarily, you know, it's important to note that people can only do this kind of work when they have reasonable caseloads. We would not have been able to ferret this out and do what needed to be done if we were operating under crushing caseloads. Now, during your career, anything that sticks out as something that either was a particular memorable accomplishment or you know something that you're, you've been most proud of, whether it's these cases or another case that you've worked on? So I used to be a trial attorney in New Hampshire, and our, the public defender's office covered um, all the courts in that county, and that was probably about seven. And so we worked in a variety, you know, we worked in all the courthouses. And one of the courthouses I worked in was this little courthouse. Actually, most of them were little courthouses. And the way I was working, I took juvenile cases as well as adult cases. And in juvenile cases, you represented the juvenile, and you sat on one side of the room at your desk. Where, and then at the other table sat uh, the prosecutor, the juvenile probation officer. And in this particular courthouse, the, um, a, a, someone from the school. In all the other courthouses, the person from the school sat in the audience, and they would just get up and say something nice about the kid, like, you know, well, when they come to school, they do a great job, or something, <laughs> something like that. But um, in, in this courthouse, there were these two wonderful women who would come in and they would do the exact same thing. But at one point, um, one of the women retired and was replaced by somebody who was not so kind. And that person would sit as a representative from the school district and advocate for my clients to be sent away. And just the optics of that, I mean, it, it, it was appalling just in general that a school district would be taking a position on whether or not my client should be locked up. Um, but 
beyond that, the optics that the school system is against a kid sitting at the at opposing counsel's table and arguing that they should be put away, it was appalling. So I went, <laughs> I went to the judge who was relatively new and was only in his courthouse, and the police prosecutor and the probation officer, and they never left their courthouse either. And I, I went, took them all in, in lobby, and I said, look, this is the only courthouse where the school sits up at the desk and advocates for a position. And he should not be able to sit there. I want him in the back. And, and they made him to go into the back. And it made him very angry. And he would sit right behind us. And, and he did this to, to other people from my office. And he would, you know, breathe heavily and sigh and make snide comments. But too bad, because he had just lost his voice. Because when you're up at the table, you can get up and talk whenever you want. And if you're in the back, you don't get to talk until you are addressed. And my client's mother was so grateful that I had just done this one little thing for her. And it made a really meaningful difference to a lot of kids because this guy was advocating against them. And it's just, who are you from the school to be advocating against the interests of our clients? Your job is to tell us how he's doing in school and how you can help. It, I mean, right. that I made right. him sit in the back. Seriously, it was one of the most, I am one of the most things I am most proud of in my career. <laughs> we hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Mass Bar Beat, and we invite you to listen to the other episodes in our Access to Justice Award series to hear more inspiring stories from the 2017 honorees. On behalf of the Massachusetts Bar Association, I'm Mike Vigneault. Thank you for listening.